Take a network break, pack a few virtual donuts, and join us for our weekly expedition to the dark heart of IT news. Today, we got stories on a massive Ericsson Verizon deal, a Microsoft acquisition, Intel financial results, and more. We're sponsored in part today by iTential, a network cloud automation. iTential software makes it easy for network teams to get insights into your entire infrastructure, immediately detect non-compliant assets for rapid remediation, and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructures. You can find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with the sponsor Fortinet. We're going to talk to a customer in the education sector. They're using multiple Fortinet products, including firewalls, the firewall analyzer, endpoint security, and Fortinet security fabrics. We have an interesting conversation about the role of security in the education sector. And last but not least, we'd really appreciate it if you could go to packetpushers.net slash survey and take just a few minutes to fill out our 2021 audience and listener survey. It helps us set priorities and understand what uh, folks are consuming and gives us some data to help us attract sponsors. That's Pack pushers.net slash survey and thanks in advance. Yeah, just a quick thing on that. We don't capture any personal data. So this is not a survey which is designed to capture you as a sales lead or capture your personal information. This is literally, uh, you know, the, the people who sponsor our shows, which means we can do this every week, want to know something about our audience and they like data. Everybody's data driven these days. There's no concept of instinct or knowledge or a feel. And uh, this is the one data tracking, if you will, that we do once a year. So if you wouldn't mind going to packetpushes.net slash survey, giving us your feedback, good and bad. If you've got some negative feedback, we want to hear that too. We take that on board and attempt to change us, change what's going on. Um, and we do listen and read all of the good and bad feedback. So please come on over and give us your feedback. Yeah, we're not sharing emails or anything or even personal information. It's just like they want to know uh, what's an aggregate number of people who are listening in North America versus uh, Europe and Asia Pac, that mm. kind of thing, and titles and that kind of stuff. So yeah, no personal information, yeah. just aggregate audience data. We don't even ask you for your email. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> we don't yeah. want it. We don't, we don't want, want it. it. We're not going to give it away. <laughs> Keep That's it not what it's for. No. All right. Uh, let's start off with, we got a little FU, some follow-up. Uh, first, last week, we talked about uh, faxes and seals still being an important part of business in Japan, which means that fax machines are still being used. And someone wrote in to say that they actually needed to use uh, some seals when they were doing some work uh, with a domain registrar in another country. And I guess they didn't actually have a seal, so they had to go make one up. <laughs> it's one of these interesting things. We're still in the transition. This uh, The person writing in said that uh, it was a Hungarian domain registrar. And part of reviewing that was that they had to, uh, for because of having a company name change, they had to provide the documents with official seals. Uh, and of course, he didn't have documents with official <laughs> seals, uh, you know, and he said we had to go and get some made up and blah, blah, blah. And it was all fine. But it's just one of those things where you think fax machines are like obsolete and who the hell uses them and why aren't they using, you know, whatever, why don't they just take a photo and send it to you? And sometimes there's just reasons, you know, honestly, I think, you know, you could stamp a document, take a photo of it and send it over. And that would be the same as a fax, but apparently in certain parts of legal or whatever, there are reasons you have to stamp it and then send it. Anyway, there you go. Just to say it's not just Japan. There are other parts of the world where still the, the physical stuff still happens. It's not all virtual. So good luck with your blockchain app uh, in the near future. That's right. And it makes me think I want to, <laughs> I got to go out and make like a, invent a family crest or something so I can uh, then make a seal that I can stamp on documents to make them look more official. You're going to go with the wax form or the ink form, Drew? Probably the wax. That feels more like King Louis. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, the wax is a little tougher because you've actually got to have a block of wax and then you've got to melt it and then drop it on the paper and then stamp it. Oh, yeah. And uh, so you actually have to have a naked flame around to melt. Anyway, interesting That's idea. That's a whole thing. Yes. 
the whole thing. It's, it's a whole lifestyle choice. That <laughs> a second right. piece of follow up that we had. Uh, thanks for sending in your FU. You asked to be anonymous, which is absolutely fine. Uh, you said thanks in the latest episode where we talked about the solo in serve you FTP on vulnerability. This person said he had no idea. And the question uh, was, you know, straight after he dropped everything while listening to the podcast and getting the server <laughs> patched, is he said, how do people track vulnerabilities? And he's claiming here that vendors are not particularly good at maintaining contact. They always end up abusing security notices with marketing spam. So there's two things here. I would be interested to hear what people do to track vulnerabilities if you've got some something to say or something to share on that front. I'd be interested to know what you actually do because I know what I do and it's not very efficient. But the second one is, is do vendors really abuse the security notices with marketing spam? So do they actually then say, here's a security notice and then the next week is like, you should come and attend our webinar, which is not what you want from a security notice email list at all. Not at all. And if that's an abuse, we should probably call that out when we see it. I wonder if that's a thing we could do, Drew. Would that be allowed? I think it would be allowed. Yeah, why not? Yeah, if people are yeah. just giving so you, us information. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, let, let, let's let's call it out and say that's not the and tell vendors, give them the feedback that you know if you have security notices, just send security notices. That's not a marketing opportunity. That's <laughs> not what definitely we signed not up be for. a marketing that's opportunity. A, yeah, that's perpetrating abuse of marketing, and maybe we, maybe we should call it out. Send it into uh, packetpushers at gmail and uh, we'll see what we can do about that. And always, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash fu uh, if you want to us for follow-up. If you want to make a comment or a clarification or correction, we're always happy to get them. Uh, and I'm glad we could help that person out <laughs> to go run away, <laughs> run right away and patch that vulnerability. We, had, we got one thing right last week, Drew. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Hurrah>. Validation. <laughs> All right. Let's see if we can get something right this week. Uh, first, Verizon has signed a five-year, $8.3 billion deal with Ericsson for 5G equipment and software as Verizon expands its 5G rollout in North America. The deal covers Ericsson's massive MIMO band, low band, and millimeter wave products. And just a note, Massive MIMO is a product description, not uh, not not an appellation I'm giving it. So MIMO is multiple input, multiple output. So normally with radios, it was single input, single output, simplex operation. With MIMO, you can actually have two-way transmission at the same time. And not only do you have two-way inputs and outputs, you actually have multiple inputs and multiple outputs. You can have uh, band waves saying two by eight, two streams going this way and two streams going that way. So, uh, and the way that they do that in, in radio is generally using things like orthogonal frequency division, multiplexing and so forth. That's a very quick potted version of MIMO. And this is massive MIMO. So the idea is that instead of having one frequency transmitting in one direction and another one in the other, you have lots and lots of frequencies and you can dynamically adjust them. So you might want to have 80% of the bandwidth of the frequencies allocated to to download. Or if the user is uploading, maybe you want to shift the frequency of the MIMO around to load the other way and make full use of the spectrum. You don't want to have the spectrum say, this is for up, this is for down. And when it's not being used, it's just not being used. Now, of course, that's got a processing load. And in this case, uh, Ericsson's um, providing a very specific subset of technology around MISF, MIMO C-band, low band and millimeter wave products. Now, these have been quite controversial uh, in that Verizon has been rolling these out on a trial program for a year. There was an article came out uh, in the last month or so pointing out that something like 0.7% of users in the US have been receiving C-band coverage uh, now, and, and basically it's a wave of waste of time. So these low band and millimeter waves are very, very short distance, very high frequency, very short distance. So literally you have to be within 50 meters, maybe 100 meters of the tower to get bandwidth. But when you do, because the signal doesn't have propagation and it can't go through glass or buildings or anything like that. You get very high speed download. And this is supposed to be revolutionary. Uh, and it does in part address the requirement of 
telcos to use spectrum efficiently. It wants to keep the good spectrum and use it for certain services, but where it can, it wants to offload into Wi-Fi or this type of uh, C-band millimeter wave products. And so this is not necessarily the big deal that you think. It's more of a, we're signing a deal to roll it out for these niche technologies that may or may not be successful over time, but it's certainly an eye-poppingly sized deal. It is eye-popping, although I will say in, in terms of your comments about wanting to use Spectrum uh, efficiently, uh, if you compare the $8.3 billion that Verizon's spending with Ericsson, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the $52 billion that Verizon spent to acquire Spectrum, auctioned off by the U.S. government last year. Uh, so the real investment is in the Spectrum and then buying the tools to try to maximize it. It is. And I also note that this equipment, the 5G millimeter wave base station equipment, comes from Ericsson's award-winning new state-of-the-art U.S. smart factory in Louisville, Texas. So this is equipment that's actually being manufactured. So I imagine that there's some politics going on here. Uh, we've seen a lot of countries around the world turn away from you know buying the cheapest product to buying products that are from specific companies. Uh, that obviously refers to Huawei being um, no longer available to submit 5G infrastructure. It has to be Western suppliers mm -hmm. for Western countries. So it used to be Ericsson and Nokia are in the main. And in this case, Verizon's moved in that direction. I do note that uh, we talked about a year ago, I think it was, about Samsung Electronics winning a $6.6 .6 billion Verizon order for network equipment. And that is much more about the towers and the backhaul. So this is building out Verizon's network. It is not just a $8 billion and done. This is just one particular component of it, but it's such a large piece of this that it's actually a standout. There's some interesting stuff in the whole way that Verizon used to run their networks is they used to chop up parts of America and say, this part will be Nokia, this part will be Ericsson, this part will be this vendor and mix and match it. And now it looks like they're going to unify the network all the way across the country. And I think that's why the numbers are so large here. Could be, although uh, we there's an article we'll have a link to from uh, Futurium, which notes that Verizon is also committing to Open RAN or ORAN, which in theory would allow them to swap out equipment and software from different manufacturers. So they're also while they're inking this giant deal with Ericsson, they're also sort of letting Ericsson know we've got our minds uh, on a potential yeah. exit if we need it. Yes, I think there'll be a lot of push around Open RAN. Whether Open RAN succeeds is yet to be seen. That's like saying Kubernetes will replace VMware. Right. It might, but uh, at this point in time, there's still many years before we'll see that happening. I suspect over time, OpenRAN will end up defining a lot of APIs between components, and then vendors will work out how to interoperate consistently in the same way that the networking industry has a range of APIs and formats, Yang models and things like that, that standardize the configuration and operation of networks. And that's what OpenRAN will eventually end up defining for most. Uh, and equally, I have no doubt that some telcos will deploy OpenRAN, but I don't necessarily feel that it's a lay down winner, just automatic. Yeah. All right. Moving on, Microsoft, they have acquired CloudNock Security. This is a company that provides cloud infrastructure entitlement management. It helps manage identities and permissions in hybrid and multi-cloud environments. So in other words, uh, CloudNock helps companies apply and manage least privileged access to cloud resources and services. Uh, Microsoft picked them up for an undisclosed amount and based on a blog announcing the purchase from Microsoft, it sounds like the plan is to roll this technology into its Azure Active Directory service and then integrate it with other Microsoft security products down the line. So not a security product at all. Uh, all it's doing is auditing uh, identities that have been given to your system and deciding 
giving you visibility of, of, you know, because their cloud is so complex and because they're so bad at developing their software, they've literally backed themselves into a corner with permissions management and user access. And so now they actually have to have another product on top of the product they failed to write the first time so that you can manage identity. At least that's it. Is that a bit cynical? Too well, cynical, too cynical. Much? Never too cynical, but very cynical. Never too cynical? Never too cynical. But uh, I think that perhaps the angle here is it's also angling for a multi-cloud. So then they're sort of acknowledging that people are not just in Azure. Right. They're also in Google and AWS. And you, if you are majorly into Azure, maybe you might use this as your standard for identity management and minimizing permissions management over time. This isn't a new category. This has been around for a long time. It's called cloud infrastructure entitlement management, which immediately sounds like license monitoring, entitlement management. But and uh, and on the whole, when I think about it, license monitoring is very close to this, right? And keep in mind that public cloud vendors uh, would rather have uncontrolled use because it generates more revenue for them. They don't really want to restrict you from using the clouds, or they want to. They don't want to stop you from using too much because that's actually negative for revenue. And more importantly, when they overspend, you can blame it on customers. It's not. Microsoft's fault or AWS's fault that you overspent. That's your fault for configuring something uncontrolled. That's your fault. That's your fault. Uh, I think you mentioned that you didn't see this as a security play. I absolutely do because identity and access control are key security issues, particularly around the whole zero trust movement, which is infiltrating all of the vendor marketing these days. Um, and if you are going to have any kind of zero trust approach, you absolutely need uh, some form of identity management and access control management, per permissions management. So I do see this slotting into a zero trust and security position. Uh, the fact that it's multi-cloud, I think, is nice for Microsoft because uh, even when you're talking to customers who might be using something else, they tend to have some kind of active directory in place for some kind of identity store. Uh, leveraging this with Azure Active Identity makes them kind of like it maybe becoming sort of the identity provider for all of your clouds, which is a great little business for them. I just feel like this is should they should have sorted this out by now. There should be standard APIs, should be interoperable. <laughs> Permissions management shouldn't be this hard that you need to go and spend a couple of hundred million buying out a four-year-old startup to manage this. Really? Does that? Uh, I mean, I feel it feels like, like core competency. Yes, it does. Although the thing is, the, the part of the issue with public cloud and multi-cloud is that maybe Microsoft does have it for core competency for Azure, but it's less great somewhere else. And so if you're looking for one uniform way to manage all of this, they've got an offer for you. Mm, yeah, so I think that's part of the problem. Good, I suppose. Filling in the holes that they dug. Of course, we always have to reinvent everything every time we move into a new area, and that's what's happening here. Apparently so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on, Greg, you found an article about research being conducted by the ARM Consortium for flexible microprocessors using materials other than silicon. I'm fascinated by this. This is literally they're using a plastic substrate or a flexible substrate on which they can develop uh, CPUs, ARM mm -hmm. CPUs, mm -hmm. ARM cores. Now, and they call it plastic ARM, so <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of a cool name because it's literally an ARM CPU printed onto a plastic substrate, so it's flexible. And as they say in the press release, it's an ultra-minimalist Cortex-M0 based SOC with just 128 bytes of RAM and 456 bytes of ROM. But it is 12 times more complex than previous state-of-the-art flexible electronics. So it is a it's native 32-bit ARM microprocessor. It has very little RAM and very little ROM. But this is more of a proof of concept. And they what they have proved this time, and they call out in the articles that they wrote and the blogs, you can find links to the blogs that ARM published in the community site, is they're saying we're taking a new process from a company called Pragmatic IC. And they've been trying to get it to work for about six or seven years. And they gave up some 
sometime in 2016, 2017, and then they decided it was time to try it again. And then in October 2020, they finally got a fully functional non-silicon ARM processor to be in a production line. And when you dig into the Pragmatic IC, it's really interesting. They're talking about a one-day production of a CPU. Mm. And this highlights against a three- to six-month production cycle for a standard silicon CPU. So that CPU that you buy in your computer takes something like three to six months to go through all of the manufacturing steps for the silicon billet to be produced, to be sliced, to be put into place, to go into the factory, and then it moves through the factory. That's not a one-day or a one-week. It's literally a months-long process before the final CPU gets packaged and, and, and sent out. And this idea that I can create a plastic on a flexible substrate, it's printed on what is fundamentally flexible. It gets done in a day and they're talking 100x lower capital investment, 100x smaller footprint than a conventional silicon fab. So 100 times faster production cycle. So it could be interesting if you start thinking about, as they say, uh, these are not desktop or smartphone class CPUs. Right but they say smart sensors, smart labels, and intelligent package. So these are actually CPUs. You could scan it and the CPU will actually, it's only got a small, like I said, 128 bytes of RAM. Not exactly world-class, Drew. That's not megabytes. That's not kilobytes. It's 128 bytes. But a smart (laughs) CPU that can do some instructions and react to a query. So it's something exciting. Yeah. So the idea isn't that you would run, you know, a full database application on this uh, sock. It's more about having a sensor or some kind of quote unquote smart packaging. And I hate myself for saying that, but, you know, I can see if you're shipping something that needs to have maintain a specific temperature or whatever, and you want to be able to monitor it. That's this kind of application, I think, is what they're thinking. And also medical devices. So the need to be yes. flexible and bendable and quickly to produce makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they said uh, in the press release that the technology really lends itself to building intelligent, disposable health monitoring systems that can be applied directly to the skin. But, you know, 456 bytes of ROM in the current version is not going to get you a big app that monitors, you know, blood flow or something, right? It's a step in that direction. So, presumably, it can iterate on this. Um, it is a speculative. There's a, there's a research paper that you can read. Um, which takes you into the guts and the details, which is linked out from the, the in the show notes. Uh, it's published on nature.com, so presumably it's peer-reviewed to some level. Uh, and interesting to see some sort of change here. This is actually quite exciting, I think, overall. And for networking, of course, it means more endpoints, right? So the networking angle here is that if you've got more CPUs, you've got more devices reading these types of things or contacting these types of things. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. Yeah, you keyed in on something which jumped out at me too, which is the disposable aspect, which, uh, you know, for medical devices, I can see that, you know, disposal being an issue, but the amount of e-waste something like this could generate, particularly when you get into putting some kind of compute processing on just packaging. Um, And I can imagine all of the uh, innumerable innumerable unnecessary use cases that could emerge, like we've put a monitor on the milk cartons in your fridge so that it can tell your smart fridge when it's low and you need to buy more milk, that kind of stuff. Just this feels like unnecessary. So let's hope it's uh, bent toward more useful things than just uh, all these horrible consumer IOT apps. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. That's something useful and instead of just more plastic toys or something. And more spam for me. Yes. 
All right, quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, iTential. Today's network spans physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. That complexity can make it hard to automate reliably. Intentials, iTential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. With iTential, you get insight into your entire infrastructure. You can immediately detect non-compliant assets for rapid remediation and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructure. The iTential platform gives you the trust and confidence you need for automation. For example, their configuration manager integrates configuration validation right into the automation process so you get operational consistency across physical and cloud networks. They also have a low-code automation studio to give you an easy on-ramp to network automation. It's got drag-and-drop capabilities and an open library of pre-built automation workflows integrates with any IT system. Itential, they deliver end-to-end automation across all your networks. This means you can know your network and automate your network. You can find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. That's itential.com slash packetpushers. And we thank Itential for being a sponsor. All right, back to the news. On Thursday, July 22nd, websites for banks, airlines, retailers, and even Amazon went offline for about an hour due to a problem with Akamai's Edge DNS service. Yes, it was DNS. Yeah, the disruption lasted up to an hour. It was caused by a bug in the domain name service. Actually, it wasn't a bug. They changed something. And once they rolled back an update that Akamai had uh, added, they confirmed that the disruption was not due to a cyber attack because everybody instantly <laughs> right. oh, cyber attack. And <laughs> yes. It's the reason du jour. Everybody just instantly assumes cyber attack at the moment, and for good reasons. But the Reuters, Reuters article has managed to, the journalists at Reuters were able to get in contact with Akamai. And as soon as they rolled back the update, Akamai added and confirmed the disruption was not due to a cyber attack. So one of these situations where these monolithic vendors, one mistake affects the whole infrastructure. So this is an example of where Nestian goes wrong. Software-defined, software operations, DevOps, sec dev, whatever you want to call it. When it goes wrong, it goes wrong in a big way. So I wonder if they're going to be starting to think about how they fix the blast radius of these things because that's an example of, you know, one change blew up the half the world's infrastructure. That's automating failure at scale, yes. Yes. So something to think about when you're writing your automation is how can I implement my automation when and if its blast radius is enormous, how do I not have a full-size blast radius? Right. Yes. Uh, and also a reminder that our supposedly decentralized internet does in fact have more choke points than we might think. Uh, we've talked about other things happening with Cloudflare, AWS services, and so on that take out large swathes of the internet. So yeah, it's not quite as decentralized as we might think. The good part about service outages like this is it's not your fault. <laughs> there you and go. more importantly, everybody else in your particular industry is probably down as well. Yes. So it's not really a competitive loss. It's always nice when it's <laughs> you know, not your fault. Yes, that is the bright side. That is the bright side. So, you know, do remember that, uh, you know, dealing with these big monoliths is actually a positive because even if it, if they're down, probably your competitor's down. So nobody's, you know, all the sales that you lost, they're losing too. So it's not the word, not the end of the world. So you know, look on the bright side. <laughs> Surprisingly bright side for the cynical show. <laughs> All right, moving on, uh, AWS, speaking of Amazon, has shut down infrastructure associated with the NSO Group. This is an Israeli company that makes spyware for governments and law enforcement agencies. There's a consortium of news agencies who reported that the NSO spyware was being used against journalists, human rights activists, politicians, and business execs. Uh, and the investigation showed that NSO spyware placed on mobile phones was using AWS services, including the CloudFront CDN. So uh, AWS came along and said that violates our terms of service and turned it off. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of aspects around the NSO group, which is quite unusual. Obviously, they are an Israeli company and they all come out, they're all ex-military. 
And the general, the Israeli military has a long habit of funding startups to come out of its military science program, which then go into the security industry, so like checkpoint files and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of an open secret in the industry that any product that comes out of Israel, likely Israel is keeping its finger involved because it might want to use its access to that product to further the, the goals of its government in, you know, in the secret services angle. And it's sort of generally assumed that NSO operates for various secret services around the world. But this article came out and it was a big foo for uh, It's not been handled well, and I'm not going to go over that. That's from somewhere else. I think the angle I want to take on this is that, first of all, Amazon's power over its customers to choose not to have them as customers is the thing here. Amazon decided that NSO was not abiding by its guidelines that in some way the NSO was conducting uh, some activity which was outside of the the rules, perhaps criminal, perhaps not. But either way, uh, AWS decided to terminate its infrastructure on AWS instantly. And it doesn't seem to have affected NSO group. It's not because uh, they knew that this was a, a risk and they seem to have identified it. But I do think that for many IT departments, they don't think about their platform as a service as they can take it away. They can decide they don't want me as a customer. And that should be part of your risk analysis. And as part of moving on to platforms as a service or software as a service like AWS, you need to be thinking as part of your risk analysis, what happens if they turned it off because they don't like me or because my organization runs something dodgy? Uh, and so certain businesses may decide that, uh, uh, there are reasons why they should be self-hosting because of that risk. Because yes, carriers can cut off your internet connection if you are clearly criminal, but carriers don't have to cut off your internet connection because they actually are covered legally in most parts of the world because they are carriers and they are, have government support to let anything go over the top. So criminals are allowed to use mobile phones. It's only when Law enforcement comes along and says, I want you to turn off that mobile phone or that mobile phone. It's right. not the responsibility of the mobile phone networks to prevent criminal activity. Does that make sense? Am I, am I talking around in circles there? No, you're making sense. You're drawing a distinction between the, the common carrier sort of requirements and AWS as a private company saying you're mm-hmm. violating our terms of service, whatever those terms might be, and we're kicking you off. That's right. You don't see a you know criminal get taken up into the front and put into jail and his phone gets taken away from him because he did criminal activities on a, on the mobile network. Or you don't see, you know, Verizon or AT&T being charged with uh, being an accessory to any crimes that were committed using the mobile phone, right? No, whereas in AWS's case, potentially they would because they're offering, they're not covered by it. They're not common carrier. They don't have the institutional legal protections of a carrier organization. So there's an interesting angle there. If you're an organization that, uh, you know, operate perhaps at, at a bit close to the legal wind, Maybe you don't want to be in the cloud or you want to be careful about where your platform or your SaaS is hosted because they might decide that you're not the sort of customer that they want to have. Which sort of ties back into our, uh, there are more choke points in this supposedly decentralized internet than you might think that could hamper your business. And so this is one of the considerations to keep in mind. Yeah, I was reading uh, some articles this week and they're saying that something like 60%, sorry, 40%. To 60%, I can't remember, but it's in that it's an astonishing large number of all internet traffic comes from the six big cloud providers today. Not a surprise. And the internet is not as decentralized as it used to be. Uh, one more point that I'm bringing up, uh, and I don't know if there's anything to this, but I, I mentioned at the start that a, a consortium of media companies uh, broke this story. One of them was the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Uh, so I don't know if that also had something to do with it. Like, <laughs> you're going after my reporters, I kick you off. <laughs> 
Yeah, the coverage of this was a little disappointing. Amnesty made some claims in its blog post and then it started to walk them back afterwards. They claimed 50,000 numbers were listed and then they came back later and said, no, we sort of said this is 50,000 numbers that could be compromised right. if I was going to use this. And so the credibility of the story has been somewhat damaged. So, But that's not the angle. That's not what I want to discuss here because that's a, that's a different issue and that's much more about civil rights and not something we want to cover here. Yeah. All right, our last story for the day. Intel reported its financial results for the second quarter of 2021. They had quarterly revenues of $19.6 billion flat year over year and net come of $5.1 billion down 1% year over year. So the analysts are a little bit disappointed here, quite a bit disappointed. The share price is down substantially. Intel has now started falling for several consecutive quarters, and that wouldn't be a surprise to you. You know that Intel's in trouble. Its x86 platform is still a very large and very successful business, but AMD has been taking chunks out of them. Uh, And then obviously ARM CPUs have been dominating them in the mobile market. And then more recently, we've seen them oust their CEO, the board oust the CEO and appoint Pat Gelsinger, who then gone out and done some things. Now, And Intel remains core to most enterprise IT infrastructure, not just servers, but networking, all our switches run mostly x86 cores, storage, most storage these days runs on x86 infrastructure. But what's happened here is that Intel has been exposed as losing ground and the flat results are highlighting just how bad the situation in growth is low. It's had to unbundle its business, split into its manufacturing arm away from the design arm. It's always worked on the principle that they need, you should be uh, integrating the two businesses together and doing them as a unified whole. So their manufacturing was completely consumed by Intel alone. And now they're diversifying and saying you can buy, they'll continue to make Intel CPUs. Uh, they'll continue to design CPUs to be used on their fabrication. But now what they're trying to do is go head to head with TSMC and say to other people, bring your CPU designs to us and we will manufacture them. Bring your CPU designs to us and we'll help you design them on our manufacturing plant. So it's a very diverse change here. And it's interesting to compare Intel to IBM because IBM's had 30 quarters of shrinking out of 34. Did you realize that? 30, I did not realize 30, that. Yeah, literally its sales has shrunk for 30 consecutive quarters out of 34. Um, and that is that. And then they specialized in financial engineering. This is what Intel has done. <laughs> now, Pat Gelsinger certainly turned around. And he, I mean, let's be fair here. He's no slouch at financial engineering during his time at VMware. He manipulated the numbers to come up good every time. And he had plenty of latitude because he had Dell sitting over the top there with that weird ownership structure and everything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it's going to be interesting to see how Intel comes out of this. And I think we'll start tracking their financial results more closely to kind of sort of make, draw some conclusions as to how they're turning around. So um, I think Intel, it's not, a, it's not certain that Intel survives in its current form. Is it able to turn the company around? Is it able to move away from CPUs? What about software? We've seen Broadcom getting out there, buying software companies or trying to buy software companies and then being blocked by competitive bodies. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see how how Intel moves away from that in an era where software matters more than hardware, perhaps. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think Intel is at that phase now where it can no longer dictate the market, uh, given competition from AMD, from ARM, from NVIDIA and so on. It doesn't get to be the 900 pound gorilla anymore. I think it can still thrive and grow and compete, but it's, like I said, not going to be able to dictate. Well, and the other interesting part about that Thrive dominating customers, like who cares what Intel CPU, what CPUs in your computer? That's like saying you have to buy cars and it's got like, you know, who, who made the motor in your car? 
it's probably not the car manufacturer. Right. 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 The, the motors are often shared between Hyundai makes the car that goes in this and, you know, they're not, but did you ever actually go in and say, well, I'm only going to buy this car if it's got this engine in it? No, you don't do that. You just buy the, you know. Most people don't. So Intel's right. managed to do that. But um, I also read some research this week that something like 40% of Intel's CPU production goes to the cloud providers. So Facebook, Google, AWS, the mega hosting, pro, you know, those types of companies. Mm-hmm. And they no longer control those customers. Those customers are big enough to make their own choices about what sort of activities they want to do. And we have seen... AWS and Google implement ARM CPUs to some level. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Can they continue to um, create CPUs that those customers want, or does it make more sense for them to develop their own, license the ARM CPUs, and then start using them if they're more efficient? Interesting game. Very interesting times. Pat Gelsinger has his work cut out for him. Yeah, for sure. All right, we have the link to the press release from Intel if you want to check it out and look at the numbers for yourself. That does wrap up the news portion. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our conversation with a Fortinet customer about security in the education sector. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. Our sponsor today is Fortinet, and we're going to talk to a customer of theirs using multiple Fortinet products, including firewalls, the firewall analyzer, Fortinet security fabric, their endpoint security client, and more. Our guest is Bill Pulte. He is CIO of the Educational Services Unit, and they provide education services to public schools in Nebraska. Bill, welcome to the podcast. And to get us started, can you just briefly describe what the Educational Services Unit is? I mentioned public school support, but give us a little more detail. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you very much for having me. So when I took this job three years ago, my family and friends didn't know what an educational service unit was either. So (laughs) uh, I'm not surprised that others don't always get it. But um, we do collect tax dollars and then we're charged with providing those services back to school districts, typically services that they can't provide on their own. So we've got higher level uh, technicians sometimes and developers and, and some of those types of services. Okay, so you're providing stuff like that to schools because it's just more financially feasible for one person to do. It's almost like a service provider. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we do that not every educational service unit does, but we land internet access here for all of our districts. So we're we're essentially an internet provider for the districts. Okay, so this leads us into the discussion around firewalls. And my understanding is that you got introduced to Fortinet because school districts in the state happened to adopt uh, Fortinet's FortiGate firewalls, and you liked them well enough that you wanted to bring them into the ESU. Is that what happened? Yeah, so I was not at ESU at the time. I was at one of the districts, uh, Papillion La Vista. But what's interesting, Nebraska's got a a great program here in the state called Network Nebraska, and it, it provides internet access to school districts around the state and their aggregation points. Um, And ESU just happens to be an aggregation point. So at the time I was using a a competitor to Fortinet and all we were doing was stateful firewall, but a lot of network Nebraska was moving to Fortinet. So when we had an RFP come up, it made a lot of sense for us to go with their security solution. And then a few years later, as I moved over to ESU, we've just kind of stayed with that and we've just kept adding services that that are provided by Fortinet have just started adding those services. And we've been uh, pleased with everything that we've gotten from them at this point. Firewalls are firewalls from some perspective, right, Bill? So what what did you latch on to that you grabbed here and said, yes, this is the for I want the Fortinet thing. It wasn't just the RFP and other people in the state using it. You, you liked this thing. Yeah. Oh, we absolutely did. We we ran it through its paces as we did the RFP, and I agree with you to to an extent. You know, a firewall is a firewall if you're doing uh, stateful firewalls, 
But as we added, wanted to add services, and yes, that a lot of these firewalls then do a lot of these services. But as we ran the FortiGate through its paces, we really saw higher bandwidth coming through as we turned services on. So at the time, we were just stateful firewall, but we've added in antivirus, we've added in application control, we've added in DNS, intrusion, intrusion prevention, web filtering, and VPN. So, uh, and we've just been super pleased every time we turn a service on, we just don't see that much degradation of our our access. Got it. And that's an important feature because a lot of times when uh, your firewall, uh, which is also running multiple functions, uh, you turn them on and you see performance go down. <laughs> right. to, to the point of it being the butt of jokes. Here's the performance. Yeah, but did you turn? Oh, you want me to turn services on? Oh, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the other number. Here's the hidden right, data every. Sheet. No, you're 100% right. Everybody always gives you their number when you've got no services on. Oh, yeah, we can do we can do 20 gig or whatever it is. And then you start asking about services and you just watch that number plummet. So in addition to the firewalls, you mentioned other products, and one of them is the 40 Analyzer, which my understanding is that's uh, essentially an event and security log collector. You're using that and you're also using it essentially to serve other schools. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So my focus for the last three years since I've got here is to really focus on providing services for districts that all our districts can use. Currently, we have 18 districts that we work with. 16 of them are are using FortiGates. And so as we looked at adding to the security fabric a little bit and how do we get some of those, these reports done or this reporting done, Forta Analyzer made a lot of sense to us. And one of the things we really loved about it was the ability to do multi-tenancy. So we can, we can carve off different aspects for districts and say, hey, you're going to get this much space. And so we spent a little bit much on our, our Forta Analyzer, but this is what I love about educational service units in the state of Nebraska. Even though we spent an extra $40,000 on our Forta Analyzer, it was still a lot cheaper than if every district had to, had to go buy their own. And so now we're allowing districts to use that space and we can manage it for them. And I just think it's a win-win for everybody. And in terms of uh, that multi-tenancy, if I'm a school district and I need to, for some reason, go in and look at some logs to you know, investigate an event, I don't have to dig through everybody's. You can just peel off the logs that I need for my district. Is that the idea? Or my particular firewall? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So you know, if, if we've got Elkhorn Public Schools, for instance, and, and they've got their logs in there, they're only seeing their logs. They're only going through their pieces. So that's one of the things that, that was essential to us because we don't want districts seeing other districts information we want to be able to secure that district to district do you have a sense of scale of this device well we bought it with the idea that we could do about 12 districts so we yeah we could scale higher if we'd bought the the larger one uh, or had gone even larger but we know that not every district is going to take every service that we we use. So we said, well, we're this is a five-year purchase. We're going to do this in such a way that we can do 12 school districts on this. And then we give every school district, we carve out space based upon size. So uh, every school gets 1.5 uh, terabytes, I believe, of storage space there wow. um, is kind of how we do that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of how often individual school districts are coming in to, to look at logs and, and play with 40 Analyzer? Yeah, I think that's district by district. One of the problems with education right now in general is that for years, nobody has had, everybody has, their focus has been 
outside of education from a security realm. And so education hasn't put the money into hiring CISOs and doing things like that. And so it's just kind of fallen back on a, a network administrator most of the time. Um, and I've been one of those network administrators in a school district, and you've got 20 things on your plate. And sometimes the last thing to worry about is, uh, did I look at the logs today? And so what happens is districts are waiting to see if there's an event and then they get back into them. So I don't think at this point we're seeing that push to be super proactive with it, but in the next few years, and we're starting to see changes around cybersecurity insurance, you know, that, that, other industries saw years ago, we're starting to see those in education. So I think we're going to get to the point where districts are going to have to, or educational service units are going to have to hire security officers who are more proactive with this. And you'll be prepared for them when that happens. Yep. Those are the conversations we're having. Uh, I've had two conversations just today focused on, on that exact piece because the state of Nebraska, there's one major insurer for, for schools, and they're asking people to fill out a survey around cybersecurity. And, and if you don't fill it out correctly, you know, you could have your, your ransomware piece dropped. And so there's going to be a focus here in the next six months to make sure that everybody can fill out this survey appropriately and people feel good about the security they have in place. Okay, that's really interesting because cyber insurance is getting a lot more attention because of ransomware attacks. And it sounds like you're saying this ability to do analysis and investigation and have logs and have sort of a forensic capability could affect premiums, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And in that piece wasn't on there directly, but this has to be renewed every year. And so we, we realized that the questions, the 13 questions that are being asked this year aren't going to be the 13 questions that they ask next year. Mm -hmm. The 13 questions they ask this year, you know, one might be, do you have multi-factor authentication? Well, that might be no for some people, yes for some people right now. Five years from now, I think that that might be everybody's doing it. So what are going to be the next things that these insurance companies want to know you can do? And, and I think these these analysis and these reading these logs is going to be a huge piece of that in the future. So did you have Fortinet deployed during the pandemic? Uh, and if so, did it play a part in your remote work, your hybrid work uh, strategy for either employees or students, teachers, faculty? Yeah, so we are the largest ESU in the state. We serve about 85,000 students every day on our network. Conservatively, we have 110,000 to 120,000 network devices on the network. And one day in March, none of those devices showed up. They all stayed at home. And, and uh, that was definitely different. And it took us a while to catch up, especially with the students, because they didn't have you know remote accounts. They didn't have a lot of that stuff in a number of situations. I think the thing that we felt great about was that we were using the VPN client specifically here at ESU. We run a finance system as well. And we were already using that system. So the EMS client was already on the computers. VPN was already there. All we had to do was move some employees into the correct Active Directory group. And they had, they had access into the network. It was uh, seamless. It was uh, unbelievably smooth. And we had very little issues with that. Now, if you want to talk to me about students getting access, that's a different conversation. And, and that, that's a much more difficult conversation because not everybody's internet's the same at home and stuff like that. But from a staff perspective, we felt very 
very good about how well things went and how quickly they went. I got the call Sunday on a Sunday night saying that we were going to close the office. Only administrators were coming in on Monday. And by Monday afternoon, I think we had everybody who needed access in. We had access in for them. It just worked. It it seems like. And, you know, salespeople come in and they always say that every salesperson who's been in my office over the last 20 years has said, oh, our product just works. And I find that to be true about 10 percent of the time. And with with Fortinet, it was true. So, well, I I paused. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop and you just like trailed off. I'm like, it it just worked. It just worked. Okay, (laughs) that never happens. So. You've clearly had a lot of experience with Fortinet products. Are you considering bringing in others? And, you know, do you see any trade-offs with sort of putting all your security eggs in one basket? Yeah, oh, we absolutely do. We are looking at doing some other projects specifically around endpoint security. We are using the endpoint security product, but do we need to be doing other things? Um, You know, we, we are an Office 365 shop, so do we need to be doing things from that standpoint as well to 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 try to mitigate anything that that might be coming in you know i think that what scares everybody is the zero day attacks and having multiple pieces in place is going to help that you know one of the other things we did and this isn't around security but it just came around that idea of hey the product works we did put in the fortinet phone system as well and part of the, Part of the decision around that that was the fact that, hey, these the firewalls are working so well, the f- analyzer is working so well. They put a bid in on the phone system and we we're like, you know, all it is is we're going to add this one little device and, and the phone devices and it, it, it's just worked for us as well. You know, it's a it's a SIP solution that we just don't we don't really struggle with. I mean, the <laughs> the value of it just works is really significant, especially yep. for. What I presume is, you know, you don't have a lot of uh, disposable IT resources at your fingertips. Yeah, no, you're that's one of the biggest things. You know, I'm I'm here late tonight. We've got our board meeting to approve the budget and we just do not have what what a banking industry might have when they say, oh, we're going to do cybersecurity. We're going to need X amount more percentage or whatever it is. You know, my percentage increase is going to be around 1%, but I'm going to have to do all these other things. And so the more I can tie multiple systems together and and work with a single partner is such a benefit to me. Um, and Fortinet has been that partner. I've just been blessed that, and it truly is a partnership um, that we feel like we have with Fortinet to the point that. Uh, 16 of our 18 districts have gone out and bought Fortinet firewalls, and we've got another one that I think will be coming on board this fall or this winter as well. It's just that one holdout. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so phones. Uh, how, I, I didn't actually know that Fortinet did phones. I do know they do APs as part of their portfolio. Is that something you're also looking at? Yeah, it is. We're set to replace all our access points here next spring, and Fortinet will definitely be a player in that. We'll probably go out and get quotes, but but we feel very good about the the Fortinet product around that to the point that that you know we've looked at the access points and it does everything we need it to do. So so I highly suspect that a year from now we will be using Fortinet uh, APs as well. 
All right. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about it. Uh, thank you, Bill, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. If you want to find out more about their security fabric, head on over to Fortinet.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes uh, to take you right there. Uh, sponsors make what we do at Packet Pushers possible, including technical podcasts. There are hundreds and hundreds of free episodes along with our community blog, which you can find at PacketPushers.net. And if you wouldn't mind, you can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.